This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. If it plays out and we've walked away from the deal, the rest of the world hasn't, the Iranians haven't, our snapback of our sanctions on Iran are not enough to bring them to the negotiating table, where does that leave us two, three, four years from now? Uh, not in a very good place. I think that had we stopped waiving some of the sanctions, put some of the sanctions back on, and then gone back to the Europeans and said, look, we're really serious. Today it is some minor sanctions. Tomorrow or next month it could be the whole thing. Then I think we might have actually been able to move the Europeans. So I think we blew an opportunity. Ambassador Jim Jeffrey is one of America's most senior diplomats. He served his country as an ambassador three times, in Turkey, in Iraq, and in Albania. He also served as President George W. Bush's Deputy National Security Advisor. He's a leading expert on the Middle East with a particular focus on Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. He is currently a distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute and a member of the Cipher Briefs Network of Experts. I had the opportunity to sit down with Jim to discuss President Trump's withdrawal last week from the Iran nuclear deal. We'll jump right into the podcast after a word from our sponsor, Raytheon. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. Outside the box, above the earth, beyond our wildest dreams, Raytheon engineers are shaping tomorrow's world from space. Raytheon, delivering trusted, innovative solutions to make the world a safer place. Jim, it is great to see you. It's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be here. President Trump last week did what most expected he would do, and he withdrew the United States from the deal that President Obama had negotiated with Iran on its nuclear program. So that's what we want to talk about. But before discussing what withdrawal means, Jim, and where we go from here, let me ask you a couple of retrospective questions. And the first is, what did you think of the deal that Obama struck with the Iranians? Were you a supporter? Were you an opponent? And why? I was a supporter Uh, purely on as uh, then-Vice President Joe Biden pitched to us at the Washington Institute at one point that this was a transactional agreement to solve 
one specific problem, which is get Iran from several months to six weeks from having a nuclear bomb capability back to at least a year. The agreement has achieved that, and so far the Iranians have been adhering to the terms of it. On the other hand, I was uneasy about the agreement at the time because I felt that, A, it would not deal with the larger problem of Iran in the region, and B, I felt that uh, President Obama at times had a transaction, not a transactional, but a transcendental view of this agreement, that this agreement would empower the moderate people around President Rouhani and uh, Foreign Minister Zarif, uh, that these people would be able to show the Iranian people that there were economic benefits and that Iran could, to paraphrase Henry Kissinger, decide definitively it was a normal state rather than a cause. And that did not happen. In fact, just as the Ink was dry, not that anybody signed the agreement, but when the agreement was finally done in the summer of 2015, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards could force commander, the famous and famous in my own experiences with him in Iraq, Qasem Soleimani, flew off to Moscow, even though he was still under U.N. sanctions and shouldn't have been allowed to do so, to cut the deal that got Russia into Syria. And that was the beginning of a far more aggressive period of Iranian um, expansionist behavior that we have seen uh, in Kirkuk against uh, the Kurdistan regional government in Syria, bringing us almost to a war between Iran and Israel. Uh, In Lebanon, with the uh, elections uh, just 10 days ago or so, where uh, Iran's uh, local uh, surrogate uh, Hezbollah basically dominated the country and a very dangerous uh, increase in uh, conflict in uh, Yemen. So all of these things were not being done by the agreement, and there seemed to be an attitude in the Obama administration, that that's what they had to do with uh, Iran is to do an agreement on the nuclear issue. So Actually, you would have you would have felt much better about this had they had the Obama administration followed the nuclear deal with much more pressure on regional misbehavior. Right. My experience, and I would have to say most of the people, military and civilian, that served with me in the Middle East at the time, felt that we were being reined in from taking more aggressive pushback actions against Iran in order to get the agreement. That is an agreement that perhaps uh, subjectively and unofficially President Obama thought would serve to tame or rein in Iran's activities in the region, led to us doing less ourselves because the goal was to get the agreement. And as I said, it didn't turn out that way once we got the agreement. Do you think the the more aggressive Iranian stance in the region in the last few years would have happened absent the nuclear deal? Or do you think the Iranians were encouraged by the deal? I think that this is a staple of Iranian foreign policy. We saw that after uh, uh, the first phase of the Iran-Iraq war, when after Iraq was pushed out, Iran decided to essentially invade and annex southern Iraq with all of its oil fields. And that led to the last uh, almost six years of that eight-year war. We saw it in its activities in Lebanon beginning in the 1980s. Iran is an expansionist regional hegemon. And for understandable reasons, it's in many respects the most powerful uh, and the most stable country in the region, uh, a region not known for stable states. 
and therefore, and it has a long history of having been uh, a Middle Eastern empire going back almost 3,000 years. So, yeah, I think it, it's not something that the agreement either powerfully encouraged or, as some would argue, I think, incorrectly financed, nor was it something that the agreement was able to turn off or divert. That is, push people in the direction of, uh, you know, sitting back and enjoying a, uh, a Silicon Valley kind of relationship with uh, the modern world, which Iran could do. So just one more question, Jim, before we get to the kind of where we go from here on the nuclear deal, which is if you were back at the White House, if you were back in your job as deputy national security advisor and a president said to you, I want to push aggressively back on Iranian malign behavior in the region, what would a policy designed to achieve that goal look like? It would start in Syria. And there I would reverse the president's apparent decision to pull out. I would maintain our presence in northeastern Syria, minimal military forces. We only have 2,000 troops there. I would basically ratchet it back to essentially a no-fly zone as we did over northern Iraq for a decade and a half with our local allies on the ground. Uh, I would then work a deal with Turkey, which isn't easy because those local allies of ours are Kurds who are sworn to uh, uh, fight Turkey. But we have worked with the Turks in that group in the past, we can do so again because Turkey is holding a very, very significant area of the north of the country to the northwest of where we are and then coordinate with the Israelis and the Saudis and basically go to the Russians who are enabling what is going on with Iranian expansion, building essentially a power projection platform in Syria and basically try to cut a deal and say, We understand you want your bases. We understand you want Assad, at least in Damascus, to remain in power. But we're not going to accept Iran becoming a power projection platform in this country. And we have a U.N. uh, process to try to deal with the political situation in Syria uh, that points to the danger Syria under the Assad government represents for its own people and for the region. We're going to build on that. We're not going to uh, participate in any reconstruction of the country that you've helped devastate, uh, Mr. Putin, until we see an acceptable political outcome. And we're going nowhere. And the half of the uh, Syrian population that is either in our areas or refugees are not going to return and be productive members of the society until you work a deal. And that deal has to involve ratcheting back Iran. That is the person to put the pressure on. We don't want to go to war with Iran. It's put the pressure on Putin. Putin doesn't want to stay there forever in a very tricky situation with us, the Turks and the Israelis, who all have more military power in Syria than Putin does. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the withdrawal from the JCPOA, what do you think the president's strategy is here? What does he want to happen? How does he want this to play out? You've asked me three questions. I think the president can only uh, answer one of them right now. That is, he doesn't have a strategy, and I don't think he's thought through or his people haven't thought through how this is going to play out. Essentially, what he presented to the American public is, uh, in terms of what he wants, is four things. First of all, he wants America to be safe, which means Iran cannot respond by increasing its use of centrifuges by moving closer to a nuclear weapon because that's what the agreement did. And if he, by pulling out of it, gets Iran closer to it, that's a failure. He wants to curb Iran's uh, activities in the region. So we have to see uh, how he will achieve that by either pulling out of the agreement or doing other things in the region. He wants to uh, have Iran sit down and negotiate a new agreement, but he hasn't 
given Iran any incentive to do so. And finally, he wants to, and this is more unofficial and underneath his other demands, he wants to maintain alliance solidarity, yet the action he has taken is seen as threatening by our European allies. Isn't the hope that by putting sanctions back on, particularly at a time when the Iranian economy is in such bad shape that it will force them back to the negotiating table? That is what he's looking for. But the problem is that gets to our allies. The only way to do that, Mike, is not to reimpose direct U.S. sanctions because, frankly, for other reasons, terrorism, money laundering, missiles, we're sanctioned most of the Iranian economy. And the Iranians aren't all that interested in selling things to us. It's selling things beginning with oil to the rest of the world. We brought Iran to the uh, nuclear negotiating table back in 2013, 14 to do real business because we hit them where it hurts in their oil exports. But we only did that through secondary sanctions on other countries' banks and on other countries' oil imports. That was very controversial at the time, even though everybody wanted to help us because everybody was concerned about Iran. Now, nobody is in support of this agreement uh, or this decision to uh, pull out of the agreement. Nobody sees the logic of it outside of the United States. And it's going to be very hard to get countries to accept essentially extraterritorial American legal jurisdiction over their banks and over their import uh, decisions Uh, simply to achieve a goal that Trump hasn't convinced others is necessary. That is where we're going to have a huge fight, and I fear the result will be not a major diminution of Iran's oil exports and thus a hit to the economy, but rather a huge fight legally and diplomatically with countries all around the world, starting with the Europeans, but also China, which imports an awful lot of Iranian oil, uh, and Japan and India. Does what the rest of the world the position they take on this? Does that depend to some extent on what the Iranians do? Exactly. In fact, what the Iranians, who are very clever and very experienced in this, are doing is saying, hey, we're not going to pull out of the deal. We will hold to the deal. That is, we will hold to the uh, limited use of centrifuges and thus and limited storage of uranium and thus maintain the one year to a nuclear breakout terms of the agreement if the Europeans meet our conditions. The Iranians haven't said what their conditions uh, will be, but we can uh, easily guess it's going to be don't impose the American secondary oil import sanctions, which, of course, is the whole way that Trump wants to get at the uh, Iranian economy. That, in a nutshell, is where the struggle is going to be between, and it's a three-sided struggle between us, the rest of the international community, and Iran. And right now, I would say points to Iran. So if the Iranians play this smart, they stay in the deal, they don't give the international community a reason to join us, right, on the sanctions front, and therefore the pressure is not on them to come back to the negotiating table. Exactly. And the international community, including our allies, are going to say there's three reasons not to go along with the United States. One is we think that Iran is in compliance with the deal. Two, we want to keep Iran in compliance with the deal, and the condition is not to apply the U.S. sanctions. And three, these sanctions are an insult to our sovereignty in the first place. We agreed to them under different conditions uh, half a decade ago. Those conditions no longer obtain. Iran, uh, its nuclear program, at least for the moment, is under control, and we're just not going to do it, and we will find ways to undercut the American sanctions initiative. And unfortunately, that way is going to involve legal actions and other actions that are going to call into question America's trade and monetary dominance of the world economy. That's where this gets so risky. So staying in the deal makes rational sense for the Iranians, but we know that countries all the time don't make the right choices 
And I'm wondering to what extent domestic politics in Iran will impact on the ultimate decision they make, whether to stay in or walk away. You hear very tough language from the hardliners, for example. You hear very tough language from the hardliners, but there's been a long tradition of the Supreme Leader Khamenei supporting President Rouhani. President Rouhani really isn't a moderate. He's basically a smart militant. And he is the guy who uh, did very well in the last presidential elections, uh, increased his margin significantly among the people. And if he can convince the Supreme Leader that his plan, which is staying in the agreement, will maintain Iran's economic opportunities through uh, continuing the oil exports, then I think uh, they will give him running room. If it plays out that way, right, where, where we've walked away from the deal, um, the rest of the world hasn't. The Iranians haven't. Our sanctions, our new, our 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 snapback of our sanctions on Iran are not enough to bring them to the negotiating table. Where does that leave us two, three, four years from now? Uh, not in a very good place, particularly as if this is combined with the uh, Trump administration's assumption that all they have to do to deal with Iran's uh, adventurism in the region is to pull the plug on the uh, nuclear agreement, and sooner or later, Iran will wake up. Well, that didn't happen last time with uh, President Obama. It isn't going to happen this time. So on top of all the other dire things that you laid out, there's also going to be continuing risk of a regional conflict with Iran on one side and most of the region on the other with Russia in the middle. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. In the next-gen controls of tomorrow's UAVs. In the high-tech guidance systems of tomorrow's weapons. In the supercomputers mounting tomorrow's cyber defense. Raytheon is there. Driving innovation that helps the U.S. Army protect people, information, and infrastructure. Together, we're making the world a safer place. Back to Iran's malign behavior in the region, do you think that our withdrawal from the agreement will have any impact on that? Do you have any concerns about the Iranians upping the ante anywhere in the region, particularly against U.S. interests or the U.S. directly in the region? Again, my normal assumption is, because it's usually been proven correctly, that uh, Iran under this dual leadership of uh, Rouhani, for the West and the economy in Qasem Soleimani for the region, with the Supreme Leader overlooking both of them, has all in all acted rationally. They are under pressure, particularly from Israel right now and potentially from us in Syria, but uh, they've done very, very well in the last year. They basically nipped in the bud another possible pressure point on them, which would be a quasi-independent uh, Kurdistan in northern Iraq with close relations to us Turkey and Israel, but because the Kurds made the mistake of going for independence and tried to include Arab areas around oil-rich Kirkuk, that gave the Iranians an opportunity to encourage the Iraqi government to take military force. So in essence, that particular chess point uh, pieces off the table. So I think that the Iranians are continuing to do well. They did uh, well through their proxy uh, Hezbollah in the Lebanese elections uh, at the beginning of this month. They are proceeding apace in their plan to essentially establish a block uh, south of Turkey and north of Saudi Arabia in the entire Levant. 
And I don't think they're going to try to uh, really ruin that by more aggressive behavior right now because more aggressive behavior would simply let the rest of the international community uh, start thinking, hmm, maybe Trump is right. Right now, they want to play this in a way that doesn't cut their oil exports, and that requires the international community to not go along with uh, Trump's new policy. So the impact on Iranian-Israeli relations, will it make either side, will will our withdrawal from JCPOA make either side in that relationship more aggressive vis-a-vis the other? Did our withdrawal have anything to do with the direct military, the first direct military exchange between the two sides that we saw last week? It's a natural assumption that perhaps it did, particularly either encouraging the Israelis to uh, think that uh, America has their back or encouraging the Iranians to think, okay, we've got to show America in another way. But A, I don't think the latter is correct because I think the Iranians uh, believe they have a way forward, as I mentioned, by keeping the rest of the international community on their side. And the more aggressive they act, the less that's going to happen. But more importantly, from everything I have heard, what the Israelis from Netanyahu Netanyahu on down have heard from President Trump and his top uh, advisors is you're on your own in Syria. We'll deal with Iran through the JCPOA uh, and our sanctions and other things, but we're not your military partner in uh, Syria. And I think the Israelis are feeling quite uh, lonely about this because while they can deal with Iran in Syria, that's not the only problem. The bigger problem is Russia, and the Israelis cannot deal with Russia. So far, the Russians have been a bad umpire of the fight, fighting back and forth between the Iranians and the Israelis. But at some point, the Russians may decide it's time to uh, weigh in on the side of the Iranians and natural allies. And where is Israel going to be then? We don't know. So the, the president's penchant for walking away from deals or near deals that previous presidents um, signed up for the Climate Accord, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and now this. Are there long-term consequences to U.S. credibility in the world from the president's actions on issues like this? Or is his approach to the world so sui generis that the world will assume the next president will revert to to form? First of all, he is sui generis, and I think the rest of the world is going to think, okay, we'll just uh, have to live with Trump. The other thing is, I separate the world into two sections, Western Europe and everybody else. To Western Europe, the secular religion is the Iranian nuclear agreement. It is climate change and uh, the Paris Treaty to fight climate change. It's international trade. This is how Europe, with its 600 million people, deals with the outside world through, if you will, soft power. And, of course, there was no one that they uh, felt more comfortable dealing with than Barack Obama, who was the soft power president. The problem is Trump isn't a soft power president. So he is a walking renunciation of the European worldview. That's one reason why we're getting this huge reaction out of Brussels, out of the uh, typically German uh, left of center uh, foreign minister and from think tanks uh, close to them. The rest of the world, however, sees two things. First of all, they see sometimes it works and it looks like it's working with North Korea. Secondly, almost everybody in the world except for the Western Europeans everybody in Eurasia anyway, except for the uh, Western Europeans, recognizes that Iran is a classic uh, hegemonial state on the march and that somebody has to stop it or you're going to have even more disasters emanating from Syria, Yemen, and elsewhere. And isn't all of that concerned about 
the fact that the United States has given itself the mission with its friends and allies in the region to do so. What they're asking is not, gee, this is terrible or we can't trust Trump. What they're saying is, what are you actually going to do against Iran in the region to bring the region back to the relative stability, and that's stability with a uh, exclamation mark around it, uh, that we had, say, from 1979 to uh, 2003, and Trump has not answered that. You've thought a lot about North Korea as well, Jim, and, and I wanted to ask you what impact, if any, positive or negative, you think the withdrawal from the Iran deal will have on the summit that the president's going to have with uh, Kim Jong-un. Yeah, again, influenced by uh, particularly European thinking, I think a lot of people in America are going down the wrong road on that, saying, well, how can Kim Jong-un trust Trump or trust the next president after Trump if we walk away from agreements? First of all, Rightly or wrongly, the Iran nuclear agreement was very, very unpopular in the United States. The polls showed that the American people, by a significant majority, were not uh, enthused about it. And uh, in the Congress, uh, it was only a minority who voted for the blocking uh, filibuster that uh, stopped the bill from dying. Not the bill, but from the uh, agreement from dying. So... Uh, the first rule is don't necessarily trust an American president who signs up to a agreement if uh, he or she hasn't brought the American Congress, the American people along with him. But totally apart from that, uh, I'm actually encouraged. So one about the only positive thing I'll say about the decision on the JCPOA is what Trump has shown is we take very seriously threats to our international order. Again, Michael, as I've said, I'm not so sure in his execution he's actually going to do much against Iran, but the fact that he recognizes it and that he has taken dramatic action and he's taken action on his watch, in his way, will impress somebody like Kim Jong-un because that's how Kim Jong-un operates. Right. And the two right. of them have gotten to the place they've gotten to this summit because they both think this way. So I don't think this is going to hurt him in his meeting with Kim Jong-un. And it might help yeah. uh, him a bit by making Kim Jong-un think, wow, this is a guy who really takes dramatic actions, doesn't listen to his advisors, doesn't listen to the rest of the world, doesn't you know eat his peas and go to bed on time. <laughs> My so, kind of guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My kind of guy. So, so, Jim, two more questions. One is kind of the, the big bottom line question from the withdrawal, which you which you don't think was a good idea, particularly in the absence of a strategy for what to do next. What approach would you have recommended to the president for how to deal with the weaknesses in the nuclear deal? He was actually negotiating with the Europeans uh, through the State Department on the three issues that the president raised uh, and their legitimate issues, uh, Iranian missile testing and export, uh, limits to the inspection of military sites, and the sunset clause, which basically says in a little more than seven years, Iran can start returning to a full unlimited enrichment of uranium. But as the Israelis just pointed out, they're sitting with a warehouse full of documents on how to develop a nuclear warhead uh, that's not a good situation. The Europeans were not willing to blow up the agreement to meet Trump's basic needs to not walk away from the agreement. But I think that had we perhaps stopped waiving some of the sanctions, put some of the sanctions back on, which the agreement in Article 36 would allow us to do if you're unhappy with what the other side is doing, and then gone back to the Europeans and said, look, we're really serious. Today it is, you know, some second, some minor sanctions Tomorrow or next month or in two months, it could be the whole thing. It could be essentially what he did uh, last week. Then I think we might have actually been able to move the Europeans. So I think we blew an opportunity. Mm. Okay, last question, Jim, which I think is a big one. We both are 
big believers that the U.S. Uh, needs to play a leadership role in the world if the world is, is to be a stable and safe place. But I think that our counterparts have not done a very good job over the years of explaining to the American people why that matters to them, right? Why does it matter to them that the Chinese are militarizing the South China Sea? Why does it matter to them that Putin grabbed Crimea? What would you say to people who have real doubts about whether the U.S. should be playing a leadership role in the world? Uh, I'm very modest about my ability, having spent most of my uh, adult life overseas, to convince Americans all around the country of what's good for them. What I would say is a lesson from history. Uh, The reason we're doing what we're doing, even if sometimes it seems to be costly, sometimes it leads to huge mistakes like Vietnam and Iraq, where I spent between the two four years, but still we need to keep doing it, is because the reason we started doing this in 1945 is because in the 30 years before then, we had gone through two world wars, a global depression that overturned many of the democracies throughout uh, the West, and the detonation of two nuclear bombs over cities. We'd never wanted to go back to that. And what we've been doing, which right now is costing us roughly 4% of our uh, annual GDP between the State Department and foreign assistance and the military, we've decided that 4% is an insurance not to have a return to the first half of the 20th century with far greater dangers such as cyber, such as tens of thousands of nuclear warheads in a half a dozen countries who want to unseat us as the center of a stable world. And that first half of that century occurred in part because we withdrew from the world. Exactly. Jim, great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. That was Ambassador Jim Jeffrey. I'm Michael Morrell, and this was Intelligence Matters. Please join us next time. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis and Jamie Benson. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad free on Wondery Plus starting May 1st.